Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to episode 39 of Conquering Columbus. We've got a great guest for you today, Mr. Randy Dean, the president of Fast Switch LTD. But before we dive into that, I want to take a moment and remind you all, go ahead and look at whatever podcast app you're listening to this on. Click that subscribe button. It really helps us out, and it'll make sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. The last thing we want to do before we get this episode rolling is take a moment to thank all of our incredible sponsors here at Conquering Columbus. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. Our final shout-out today goes out to Procure Clean. Procure Clean is the official disinfectant and deodorizer for USA Wrestling, and they have a patented drop-and-go product that allows you to disinfect pretty much any surface in as little as 30 seconds. If you want to find out more about Procure Clean, email sales at procureclean.com, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning but I'll find a way to survive I'll find a way to get the job done yeah there's a little doubt but you know what once again I think of that guy in my ear I think about stepping up to the stage I think about the challenge like I've lost sometimes but I've won more than I've lost and so like I bet on me any day choosing greatness greatness doesn't choose you you know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. we got a great show for you today, and I'm going to kick it over to Josh for a quick intro on our guest. Hey guys, today on the show we have Randy Dean. For those of you who don't know who he is, Randy is the president of FastSwitch, which is an IT consulting and recruiting company located right here in Columbus, Ohio. Some background, he got his undergraduate degree from Drury University in Economics and Business before getting his MBA from the University of Michigan with a specialization in Marketing and Finance. Today, he's the president of Fast Switch, and they're one of the largest IT consulting and recruiting companies in the Midwest. Welcome to the show, Randy. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. How's your day going so far? It's going good. It's been busy. I've realized I am sometimes a serial overscheduler, and so I <laughs> suffered the, the pains associated with that today, but uh, very happy to be here. I think it happens to the best of us. So. Uh, yeah, no, I can tell. I mean, if uh, you, get, you end up getting uh, Josh's Google Calendar ever shared with you, it is like a book. Like, every day is a book. And it has down to the five-minute mark scheduled. If you That's have impressive. time open, you got to fill it. That's <laughs> impressive. I See, I try to leave. I like big gaps. And so I get in, 
and I get mad at myself and I'm like, where's my gaps? There's no gaps in there. Because that's when I do, I think that's when the real value a lot of times is created because you're doing, that's, you, you can actually think about something and a good idea comes up. I, did, I came up with an idea the other day and our, my CEO was like, that's genius. I'm like, no, it's just a regular little thought. But the only reason I had that thought is I had two hours between two meetings and I was kind of working through something. So, so give yourself some time to do that. No, I, yeah, I do agree. It's something I struggle with constantly needing execution on things, but I do find when I have that time to think, I come up with more creativity and, and good ideas, so it's, it's a hard balance for me. But kind of get back, get back to you on the show instead of a psychoanalysis of me. Um, <laughs> I thought that'd be more fun, but we'll right. go with it. <laughs> it happened in another episode. We don't need it again. <laughs> so let's kick it back a little bit to your childhood, and we'll talk a little bit about, give us some background on you, where you came from, siblings, and then up until going to Michigan, and then we'll kind of kick it off from there. All right, sure. Um, so I originally grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and my dad um, decided for some reason out of the blue to buy a business that was in Springfield, Missouri. So he moved there, got into a business he had no knowledge of, but just, I think, didn't enjoy working for other people enough that he said, okay, I'll just grasp it, whatever looks like a good opportunity. And he made, uh, made a good business out of that business. And so we moved to Springfield, Missouri, and uh, I was fortunate to go to school there. Really nice, nice town. One of the fun things about it is, um, as I was in high school, uh, one of the guys that we went to school with was Brad Pitt, who obviously now is a very successful actor. Um, and I do, I felt kind of redeemed by the fact that he was a successful actor because I remember him in high school, and I remember thinking, how come all the girls like this guy so much? And I thought I was just re- comparing myself to a regular person, and I'm like, no, okay, I was comparing myself to somebody who's going to be a future movie star. So at least uh, that made a little more sense to me. So, Mike, I might be a future movie star, so don't get down on yourself. Uh, you, know, you could be there, yes. I struggle every day. <laughs> no, I, when you say that, though, it does. Uh, it kind of hits home, at least for me, because I think that my time um, wrestling at Ohio State really brought me to a level around people who were at just the elite level, like Olympic gold medalists and just the best in their field. And although, you know, you never reach that point personally, you just feel greatness and you see what it looks like and you realize how achievable it is and you see like the flaws they have as humans and even though there's not many of them because they're so good at what they do it just kind of really brings back home what excellence is you know and I think it gives you the perception you can actually achieve it a lot more than just hearing about them on tv or constantly seeing them in pictures or magazines whatever it may be so yeah I mean I think one of the challenges when you think about it is all we see is a sanitized version of a movie star's life or Steve Jobs's life or even Facebook does that does, does everybody post the boring stuff they had to do during the day no they show hey my kid won this award or I just ran a marathon um, and so we kind of get a distorted perception there as well and I'm not blaming anybody for posting that. I'd be kind of bored if somebody said, hey, I put my, here's me putting my socks on today. But um, I think living that and seeing people that are extremely successful and then realizing that they have the same challenges. You know, we, we had uh, an event at my uh, block years ago, and uh, Cameron Mitchell was there, and that was before I knew Cameron. And my kids were playing on this trampoline, and my wife was yelling at me for letting them play on the trampoline. And I said, oh, they'll be fine, honey. And then a minute later... His wife is yelling at him for his kids playing on the trampoline. And I said, you know, it was kind of fun. I'm like, hey, Cameron, it looks like you get the same treatment from the wife that I do. You know, so being a, a successful restaurateur does not fix that problem. So uh, it's just a reminder. We're all here with essentially given the same, you know, abilities to some degree by God. And we got to make the most of it. And those decisions, you know, I think are what really separate those people that are very successful from the ones that are just okay. And sometimes maybe it's okay not to be driven every minute of the day you know I have friends that are very happy doing what they're doing and 
uh, doing a great job, and they're not the most um, maybe financially successful, but they have successful families, they have careers they're happy with, uh, they feel like they're adding value to the world, and I would argue in a lot of cases that's a greater level of success than somebody maybe that's very financially successful but hasn't lived uh, a fulfilling life. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, you had some interesting stories about childhood growing up, and uh, we'd love to hear some of that. Can you take us back to talk about, you know, maybe your grandparents and your family growing up and, the, you know, the kind of things you went through as you marched on towards college? Sure. I'm also yeah. curious about that business that your dad owned. What, what was that and what exactly did that do? Yeah, so, so this business, it really shouldn't have even been a business. It was what they made was little mobile buildings and their biggest product would, was an actually addition to a mobile home. So somebody would buy a mobile home, they'd want another room, and he'd build a, a room for them essentially prefabricated in a factory and they'd attach it to it. And if you know the mobile home industry, um, there's a couple things with it. One, it tends to be very low income people, hard to get uh, financing for those people, but it's also one of the highest variables in the stock market. So when it's bad, it's very, very bad, and when it's up, it, it really grows. Well, and he got to see that because his business went the same way. So it was really an interesting direction for him to go. But the one thing I saw at him through that is what he was really good at was selling these things. He could get a lot of people to trust him and buy them. And, you know, he certainly delivered as well. But um, as he grew the business, one thing that happened is he moved from selling to administrating and he wasn't you know, he didn't really have that skill set. You know, he, my, my parents were from relatively humble beginnings. My, uh, my grandmother actually picked cotton in fields. Neither my father nor mother finished high school. So when I went to go to school, it's kind of funny. Um, it was me and my brother figuring out where I was going to go to school, not sitting down with my parents because they just really had no, they were like, well, here's some magazines from school. We don't really know which one's a good one. So how did you make that decision? Like, how did you kind of find your own and say that college is the right decision for me? Were you just always really personally driven where you wanted to achieve? That's an interesting question. And I've thought back, and I just think I always knew I was going to go to college because at least at that time, and maybe still just as true now, that was like one of the keys to success, right? It was like, okay, you finish high school, you go to college, and then figure out what you're going to do career-wise. And so I just had that thought in my mind. And I still remember going in like my junior year to see our, uh, we had a school counselor for that stuff after I had a pretty good uh, test on one of our, uh, one of the PSAT tests, I think. And she was literally surprised to see me and said, well, you're the last person I thought would be walking into my office. And, you know, we had a good conversation, but um, yeah, it was kind of interesting. But I knew internally, I always knew I wanted it to be successful. And I thought that was one of the key steps to getting there. Definitely. And so... From there, you kind of, you know, as you were looking at colleges, what made you choose Drury of uh, all the schools you had? Well, what, what made me choose Drury um, was I had a, a, an older relative that had gone to the University of Chicago. And what made me choose Drury is the fact I didn't get into Chicago, and I, I literally didn't have a secondary school. So my grades weren't that great in school, but my test scores were pretty good. And so Chicago conditionally accepted me, and I had to get good grades my first semester of my senior year. I did not get good grades the first semester of my senior year, so it was time to go into my backup mode, and that's where I went to Drury College, which is what led me to go to Michigan, is nobody's heard of Drury College, and I wanted a school that somebody had heard of, so when I was in Toledo, Ohio, I had the opportunity to go to University of Michigan and went to University of Michigan. So you talked a little bit about, I'm kind of interested personally on what that experience was like. I don't know how much the rest of our audience, uh, they're kind of probably not big Michigan fans, but what, what was that like going from Drury into Michigan and what was your NBA experience like? And fun fact, for those of you who don't know, Josh is going to the Ross School of Business. Congrats, Josh. Nice. Excellent. But I, I, I will never call it the University of Michigan. So <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, we'll get him there. We'll get him there. <laughs> so 
your question was, what was that like? You know, there's a couple things. Um, one, when I was in undergrad at Drury, it was a good school, smaller classes. I mean, I had like one of my econ classes was six people in the classroom and our professor would come and sit on a desk right next to you as he was lecturing. So it was really a neat, kind of a neat environment. You don't tend to get that in larger schools as much. Um, but when I went to Michigan, a little bit larger classrooms, pretty serious students in general. But what I found was two things. One, you get out of it what you put in. So you could, you go into an MBA program, this is probably true for almost any MBA program, you can get by putting in the minimal effort and you won't learn that much, but you can get that degree if you think the degree is where the value is. I think the value is what you learn and what you prove to yourself while you're, while you're at that school. Um, but the other big kind of eye-opener was I was usually one of the smarter guys probably in Drury on average in any of my classes. When I went to Michigan, I was completely average. There was guys a lot smarter than me, and not just guys, women, obviously. And there was some, hopefully, that weren't as smart. But there were people that were so much smarter than me in some classes. I was like, wow, I'm not sure I should, you know, I, I, should, I don't even deserve to be in this class with this guy. He knew so much more. Um, so it was, I think, good to understand. It, it was a good realization how much good, smart people there are in the world, because that's really helped me say, okay, I'm not the person to answer this question. It's the person that's got the engineering degree that really understands this particular problem or whatever the specialty. Yeah, I think that was kind of daunting to me when I was there too on the visit before I had heard back from them. There's people like PhDs in engineering or all these different degrees across all the boards and extremely intelligent people. I'm just thinking like, I don't know how I'm going to pair up with this. I got an undergrad degree from, you know, public school. I didn't go to any Ivy League school. But at the same time, as scary as it is now that I, I did get accepted, I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to compete with all these people? I kind of felt similar when I was first entering Ohio State athletically, you know, and I think that those are the environments where you grow the most, and you kind of learn the most about yourself when you throw yourself into what is like a quote-unquote fire pit, and you think, man, this is going to be tough, yeah. and then you, I mean, obviously always come out in the end, but take me through, I guess, and you talked about your brother had applied to another business school, is that right, when he had heard that you'd gotten to Michigan? Yeah, so as soon as I got accepted to Michigan, um, and I don't know how it came up in the conversation, I probably just told him. And, and he got mad, and then literally within a semester or as short a period of time as could possibly happen, he got into the University of Chicago and, and worked and got his MBA. It's a pretty good uh, vengeance right. <laughs> application. I, That's not, think, not a bad one to get into. And I think so. I, correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, so he got into the school I didn't get accepted to. So I, I didn't think he was intentionally trying to get me that way. He happened to be just living in Chicago at the time. Right. So. He just happened to send you a picture right when he got accepted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Here's me graduating, and you're not in this picture. <laughs> but how did that competition growing up help you out as you kind of moved along, and did it, you know, did it help you grow in a significant way? Even up until today. Yeah, so I grew up in my family, and, and I, now having kids, I sometimes wonder if it's a good or bad thing. But I grew up in a family where we were very competitive. So we played ping pong, and my dad would try to beat you, and you'd try to beat him. And if we played tennis, we'd try, you know, whatever it was, we just were, whether it was Monopoly, I think I caught my sister cheating at Monopoly. I'm like, who cheats at Monopoly? But we were just very competitive, and, and that's the way we were raised. And I've raised my kids that way, I think maybe a little less so, I hope. But um, it has given me a lot of advantages because... A lot of things I've been successful at, it's because I've refused to lose. So I'm trying to develop this account, and somebody's doing a better job as a competitor, and I'm like, no, I'm not going to let this company or this individual win when we have all the means available to do so ourselves, and we just need to work harder, or we need to work smarter, or we have to think through where we're, we're not falling. So I think that competitiveness 
certainly in sports, it has a huge value, right? The person that will fight to the last second and maybe win. Um, and I got to see that. I, my son was just in a tennis tournament, and he got behind in a couple games and still managed to win the games. And that was, to me, competitiveness. I didn't give up. I didn't think I was going to lose. I was willing to you know, play hard until the end and see what happens. So I think there's a lot of value to that. Um, unfortunately, it creates you know, more wrestling matches and such in the house, but I think that's normal with boys. So. And what does he do today? So today he's um, he's had several of his own startups, and I think he's in the process of trying to get funding for uh, a startup right now. I haven't, I don't have the most recent update on that, so I don't like give you the, the exact answer. But he's done a couple marketing ventures. Do you guys consult with each other on your different business ideas and things like that, or? You know, we used to a lot. We don't as much because my business is kind of specialized. He doesn't really have that much insight into it, and he's been doing startups in different areas that are just enough different that I don't have a lot of, you know, there's not much value for us to add it to each other. We're almost too much like each other in some way so that, you know, me talking to myself doesn't add a lot of value either. Right. And I think that's a key distinction, you know, I mean, everybody's looking for, you know, they say you need a partner, but I think the key thing, and, you know, I'd like to get your opinion on this is when you're looking for a partner is finding something, somebody who's got a significant difference from your thought process. Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, like we've had, I've had a great relationship with our CEO, and he's an engineer. He's an electrical engineer. Um, what's interesting, and, and I'm a sales and marketing guy, and so we come at problems almost 180 degrees difference, but we almost always come to the same solution at the end, and it really helps. But I can actually watch him think, and I know he's. I can tell by the questions he asks me, he's thinking differently, and it's really been helpful because, you know, you do. If you're just one person out there, sometimes you're like, "Am I crazy?" But this is what I'm thinking we should do, or is that completely wrong? Or and it's nice to have somebody to bounce that off of. And we try to, I try to use some, I don't know if I'd call them coaches. One of them is a business coach. It's a former um, practicing psychologist, and his advice is is extremely good because when I have a you know somebody behaving in a strange manner or uh, uh, maybe a communication issue I'm having with a client, I can go to him and say, hey, here's here's what I'm seeing. What is, what's your read on this situation? And because he's got expertise in that area, you know, he spent eight or 12 years, whatever, going to school in that particular area, he has an insight that's completely different than what I could do. And even if I was right in what I thought was happening, just having that validation is helpful. So as you go through a process like that, working with a partner or being coached, um, something that I've always, I've always been interested in and maybe struggled with and I'm trying to learn how to master is taking advice and feedback from other people's paths and then still kind of using my intuition and realizing what's going on to make my own opinions on things as I move forward. So like, for example, here at FMX, we're developing this um, SDR internal sales team and developing these processes around it. I'm trying to get feedback from all these other SaaS companies across Columbus and beyond that already have this in place. But at the same time saying, okay, we're unique and different senses. So we kind of got to look at what's working here. So it's kind of a long-winded question, but does it does it make sense in what I'm asking? Like, how do you kind of balance that? that that's a huge question. So I, to me, you're saying, how do I balance what my gut tells me is right or what I think is right and if other people are giving me different influences? And I, I'll give you one example from my my life, and this was, you know, at least in my work career, there's certain things that are like defining changes that happen. One was I was at a company, and we were kind of a startup. We were about $4 million in sales, and we were selling a kind of new product, so I had to hire a new sales force, and I was absolutely failing at this thing. I was three or six months in, and I mean, literally, I would go home and I'm like, okay, we are failing. This is not, you know, I am not going to be successful in this job. And my boss, great guy named Chuck, had helped me hire these salespeople, and they were, they were the wrong salespeople. We were doing some things wrong. And I remember I came home one day and I was frustrated, and my wife's like, well, what's bothering you? I'm like, 
I'm failing and my I'm literally failing. Not like I was going to be fired. He hadn't threatened me or anything like that. But it's just when you when you have salespeople and you're making no sales, that's not a good thing. So I knew we were failing, and um, and I, I she's like, well, what are you going to do? And I said, you know. If I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail because of the decisions I'm making, not the decisions that somebody else is making. So we let all our salespeople that were working for me go, which they were nice people, felt bad doing it, but you know there was no future in not making sales. Completely hired new people, which were a significantly different type of experience in those people. And we went from being like totally failing to where I really should have been out of a job very soon to the top performer in the company for like four years. Um, and it was really all in the fact that I trusted my gut saying, you know, we can't just tweak things to be successful with these existing set of salespeople. We got to start over and get the right people that can be successful in this job. Um, and I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't made that decision. Certainly, I think that particular job wouldn't have been successful, but that's helped me kind of. So my, my answer to your question is I try to take if I feel strongly, I trust my gut and then I will sometimes ask other people to validate. And, and if they if somebody came that I really trusted said, wow, here's a major problem you're not thinking about with that, then I would take that into account. But if it's always like, I don't know, I don't love that idea. And if I'm thinking this is absolutely the right idea, then you still do it. So kind of jumping into a little bit about what you're doing today, maybe a 10,000 overview of 10,000 feet overview of your career up until Fast Switch, just like the type of roles that you had and then kind of how it transitioned, I guess. Okay. So I went uh, out of college. I went to work for AT&T. I'd worked for them in college, and they offered me a job in Toledo, Ohio. And I think I was the only one in that company of 100,000 that was willing to move to Toledo, Ohio. But it was a good managerial job in sales. So I managed salespeople, probably developed a little better sales skills. While I was there, I went and got my, my master's degree. Um, and a lot of times people will ask me, is it worthwhile getting a master's degree, particularly an MBA, because that's the only thing I have experience with. Man, I hope you say yes. I already paid my acceptance deposit, and that's not that's <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, and I think, I think the answer is, if you, if you think it's a magic pill that's going to lead you to success despite what you're doing, absolutely not, right? It's, it, 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 what it shows you is that you attended whatever level of school for two or three years, and you, and you fulfilled the minimum requirements of that requirement. That, that's all that paper gives you. Is it valuable though in terms of your own self-esteem, your ability to be comfortable talking to CFOs or CIOs or C-level executives? Is it helpful knowing that there's probably nobody in the room that's 10 times more knowledgeable than you on the subject? Yeah, and I think that's really where the value comes in. And that's why I would challenge anybody that's gonna go after a degree like that to make sure that they're pushing themselves as they go through it, as opposed to, you know, talk about conquering Columbus. Don't go through and just do the minimal amount possible go there and take some classes that are going to challenge you you know i took two of the classes i took are ones you know if, if we would have had a not a harder grading scale like we did in high school i probably would have failed but they they were ones i learned the most from because i knew nothing about them and it really pushed me intellectually just to keep up with the other people in that class um so i think i got off t topic there though so let me see if I can reel back. Where were we going? Oh, so my history of, of work. So I got my MBA while I was going through there. And then I went through a series of sales management jobs. I, I was at the startup called uh, Entergy, where we uh, started up a new division and grew up from $4 million to $100 million. I was a regional manager for, in that company. Um, then I went to work for uh, a company doing what we're doing now for a year. And I didn't like it because um, the person didn't have very good values that I was working for. He, he wanted to have good values, but money would always, if it was a question of money or doing the right thing, money won a lot of times. And so I left that business and went to work for Sterling Commerce in a couple of roles. I ran a uh, consulting division and then I was a director of sales for them. Um, and that's when I really started to love technology because I could see how 
just that technology, which is kind of old technology now, uh, could help transform a business, add efficiencies, et cetera. Um, and so I was there for several years, went to be VP of sales for a smaller software company. Um, unfortunately, that company's sales were almost 100% to dot-coms. And so in 2001, uh, early 2002, really, I was impacted and our, our company sales went to zero at one quarter, which again, I've learned zero sales are usually a bad thing in most companies. Um, so I left that company, went through. Trust me, we felt it here at Conquering Columbus. We had <laughs> at least zero revenue. We've been, you, been there you've for seen that. that. Well, our, and our West Coast division actually had a negative sales. I've never heard of a negative sales quarter in software sales, but our West Coast uh, division actually had a negative sales. More, more returns than right, sales. I was going to say, yeah. more people asking for refunds. So that's, even, that's even worse than zero sales is negative sales. So we, I also reached that one. Um, so so did that, did a one-year gig uh, uh, consulting for a company called Matworks that if you've ever walked into almost any store, you've walked over some of their product, that was really fun, fun job. And then I got back into this business working for a competitor of FastSwitch for about four months and uh, did that job, I think it lasted four and a half months, literally had five bosses, I didn't have TPS reports, but it was as close to office space as you could be in a sales job. Uh, and then fortunately, as I was into that, uh, our CEO approached me and said, hey, I gotta rebuild the business, I gotta do this and that, and I would, do you know anybody would be interested? And I'm like, yeah, I'm real interested. And so uh, since then, we've been very fortunate to grow and our business has gone from five million to probably about 110 million in sales this year and we're, we're still growing nicely. You said your path or your goal is to hit a billion here over the next how many years? Uh, I'd like to see it in eight years to seven years, that may be, stretching it but that's our that's our stretch goal yes so i mean any you've gone from five to what did you say 100 or another we'll company? do about 110 million this year so yes. talk about what your what process you're going to put in place i mean you guys got competitors it's not like uh an industry that doesn't have anybody else competing in it and i mean out here at fmx is kind of similar so i'm really interested almost a selfish question on how are you going to take a company to 100 million to a billion when you have people that are doing the same providing the same services as you guys? Yeah, that's a good question. In fact, our business, even more so than yours, is the exact kind of business Warren Buffett doesn't love. There's not a big moat around the business. There isn't a lot of intellectual property capital that somebody else can't duplicate. Um, so our magic sauce is really our ability to perform. It's our ability to deliver, to deliver for our clients. And so we're, uh, we've done a pretty good job of creating this and getting it out to our to the areas that we have. And what we're really trying to do is routinize that or, or maybe standardize it enough that we can make sure that every every new market we bring up can follow the, that kind of same instruction book to see the same level of success. So I think it is hard because the, the, the industry is growing, say, 3 or 5% a year, and we want to grow at 25% a year, which means you got to take business away from somebody else that's doing it. The, the, the thing I've seen in business, and I worked for AT&T when it was the biggest company in the world, is no matter how big and good you think some other company is, there's a lot of bad ones. There's a lot of people it's going to be easy to take some business from. So that's what I would suggest to you is that you're going to have some tough competitors that those aren't the people where you're going to get your market share from, but there will be a lot that aren't doing a good job for their clients, and that's where your opportunities lie. And that's what we've seen. I mean, in every case, as we've grown, we've, you know, we'll, we'll meet with a client, and they will say, you know, I'm pretty happy with this, but, oh, these guys aren't doing a good job for us. I'm like, okay, well, we're, let's see if we can maybe do a better job there for you, Mr. Customer. And uh, invariably, we're able to do that. Are there particular areas that you notice that these companies are not doing as well of a job in as you guys, like in terms of delivery? or? Yeah, I think that the two things I would say is customer service and really 
having the customer's best interest in mind. So the way we define that customer service, you know, we would want any customer we deal with to say, hey, these are good people with the right values and they have the best interest of the people that work for them and us in mind. And what we mean by having the best interest of the client in mind is, we've talked about this a little bit in sales, there's always in sales, you know, I can try to maximize profit and charge you a billion dollars for this item, or I can try to give you the lowest price to where I don't even make any money on this, this item. There's a fair profit to be made, and trying to have the best interest of the client in mind is when we make decisions, we literally will often internally have a discussion about, oh, should we tell the customer this, or is this something that we should do? And every time that conversation comes up, we try to refocus it and say, well, what's in the best interest of the person and what's in the best interest of our client? And then, the, honestly, the decision every time makes itself as soon as you ask that question because you can always answer that. Like, does a customer – this this fact, is it something the customer would want to know? Yes, well, then we should tell the customer. Um, if I were the customer, would I want that to happen to me? No, then we probably shouldn't do that to the customer. What you'll find though, is a lot of our competitors do because it makes that sales rep a little extra money or it makes that company a little extra money or that sales rep is on quota and if he doesn't hit his three X of something, then he's gonna be fired. So he's taking an action that isn't in the best interest, maybe even of his own company and that client. Right, I think that's an interesting point that you made there. I mean. So are none of your sales reps on quota then? No, they are on quota. They are on very tough quota. No, um, <laughs> no, they, they have, they're paid on commission. They're not, actually, that's an interesting question. They're not on a quota. They don't, they don't actually have quotas. They don't have, they have guidelines in terms of performance. Um, I've been in sales long enough. I believe good salespeople, the sales will come, I believe in giving goals, but not trying to uh, penalize people for short-term variation from where we'd like to see the performance be. So, um, you know, if, if you look at it like a football example, say you have a guy that's averaging 100 yards rushing every game, uh, but he has a game where he only rushed for 50. Well, w is he a bad guy that we should punish, or was there maybe some uh, external factors that led to that? Sales is the same way. Somebody could do exactly the right thing all the time and still end up with a great month one month because all these deals happen to hit, or a less good month because these three clients cut back for whatever reason. So we try to keep that in mind. And really our goal is, our belief is, if we have the right salesperson and he or she is motivated, we want them to value that customer relationship more than hitting a number in a particular month. It's interesting you say that because we don't really have quotas here. We do have goals and guidelines, but I don't even know if I could tell you what my quota was. I don't even know. I can tell you a little bit about our commission structure, but I guess my whole goal at all points is just to make sure that I'm doing better than every other sales rep on the team possible. And that, I mean, and that's the whole thing that drives me. I think that if you get like a really driven individual, that seems to work really well. Cause you almost take, it's like your destiny's in your own hands, you know, and you almost feel like you're running your own little business and you're doing everything for yourself, which is kind of an interesting concept. It's an entrepreneurial spirit inside of this growing company. Well, and you talked, you know, that job where I was telling you where I was failing and I hired a new sales team the, the number one criteria we had for every new salesperson that we hired was they had to be the number one performer from whatever sales team they were on. Um, you know, if it was a thousand person sales team, they probably didn't need to be number one, but most of them were local sales teams of eight people. And we take that number one person. And it was kind of an interesting experiment. And like, what happens when you take, you know, eight people that were used to being number one and you put them all together because everybody can't be number one. And what we saw was a very competitive environment where everybody was trying to outwork everybody else to be successful. How do you snatch up all those number ones? You know, it wasn't that hard. What you'll find is there's a, there's a couple things that happen. There's there's people that are number one in an industry that doesn't pay that well. So, like, we had some great people from, like, uniform sales, like Centos, 
where the salaries might be like thirty or forty thousand, even though this person's like at two hundred and seventy percent of quota, it's really easy to hire that person away when you say, Hey, look, our compensation plan lets you make up to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars if you, you know, if your performance were that compared to our other sales reps. Um, so what we found is we, we couldn't find there wasn't an industry like ours at the time. So because we could pick from these different industries, we would look for the top person in this or this or this, and we were able to lure them in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a good comp plan. We had kind of a run your own business for your territory, you know, some of the things that make a, a sales job attractive for those types of people. Definitely. And so I guess kind of my thought process is, and there's been a lot of, you know, stuff floating around on LinkedIn and stuff lately of, about interviewing people. And um, what was kind of in your interview process? I mean, you had to turn down some of these number one recruits, I'm sure. Um, what were you looking for in an interview process for your top salespeople? So, so a couple of things. You, you want, to me, one, you want to kind of validate that the performance they have is accurate and is it how sustained has it been. You know, if a person's number one for one month and he's had a 10-year career, that's not all that exciting. Uh, the second thing is try to get a feel for their values. You know, are there, do their values match up with us? You know, are they, did they win at all costs? You know, if somebody complains about their current place or if they complain about the other people they work with, those were people that we weren't interested in because we didn't want a top performer that was going to make the office miserable and not something we could support long term. Um, and if they had those, those were really the qualities. It was, you know, good values, consistent um, performance in terms of achievement and, you know, uh, kind of a positive attitude for however you measure that. You know, you meet somebody is, does this person look like he thinks the, the cup's half full or half empty? And if we wanted those half full kind of guys, although, you know, there's still air in there, so I guess arguably it's full regardless. <laughs> I guess I'm an always full guy. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson the other day. I've been on a big Neil deGrasse Tyson kick for like the past two weeks, but he said, technically the cup is half full if you're filling it up and it's half empty if you're drinking it down, which right. made a remarkable amount of sense. <laughs> yeah, right. like, well, I mean, and it, it for everybody. Speaking. Yeah, logic. I mean, it's an interesting concept. I, I like Randy's policy. If it's it's got air in it, even if it doesn't have you know liquid in it, it's always full. Well, you can but, take that to Neil deGrasse. Okay. <laughs> I think you might agree with me. Um, but moving on, um, let's jump into kind of you know some of the advice for our listeners and some questions about Columbus as a city since you've been here for a while. Um, most of our listeners are going to be young professionals and entrepreneurs here in the city. Uh, do you have any personal or career advice for those people? Yeah, I have a couple of things. First, I think Columbus has become a great place to be for somebody that's early in their career. It's just, you know, I, I first recommend anybody that's looking to really grow in your career, find an environment that supports that. So if you go into you could take a very capable person and if you throw them into a challenged city like maybe Youngstown, Ohio, it's going to be hard to have the same level of success than if you throw somebody in a growing city like a Columbus or Atlanta or uh, L.A. So I think that is important. Uh, and then the second piece is, you know, take advantage of what's there. There's always, you know, we have great social media. So social media can maybe be a curse at sometimes if you spend all your time doing it and not doing anything positive. But it does allow you to connect to some really good people. LinkedIn's a great tool for that that will offer advice and help you in directions. So um, you know, I'm a big believer in networking. And, and by networking, it's, you know, a lot of times, uh, you know, what I'd reference somebody graduating from school is, you know, if you're excited about retail, find some people in retail that are doing some things that you think are interesting and ask them, hey, can I take you to coffee and just understand what it's like to do your job as a purchaser or do your job as a 
coordinator, whatever the role may be. And you'll find most people, not everyone, you know, you're going to have some rejection. You got to deal with that. But in general, most people want to help somebody new out of school. And, you know, we want to see people be successful. And my experience has been the more successful the person in most cases, the more likely they are to want to try to help somebody like that. Yeah, I've actually had that personal experience over the last several months since I figured out what I wanted to go back in my master's for, and I started reaching out to CFOs of the biggest companies in Columbus, and it's crazy how excited they were to actually get dinner with me. And then, like the most exciting hour and a half dinner I had, I learned a crazy amount, and then they were just super enthusiastic about the entire process, which is I didn't feel like I was burdening them in any way, which was super cool. Um, well, the good news is you were doing that because you really cared. Now... I did get a money-raising call from Drury College once, and the first question that the person called said, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give to somebody if they were graduating from college now? And I started, oh, that's a good question. That'd be interesting to answer. And then I said, you're just really trying to get a donation, aren't you? And she's like, well, yeah. And I said, well, let's just talk about that. Then we don't need, you, you know, she right. wasn't going to listen to what I had to say. She just wanted to, you know, that was. <laughs> she wasn't that, actually interested in the question. No, that, she was not interested in the question. She was, that was her intro to try to get you engaged so that then you, she could ask you for a donation. So I, I tend to try to short circuit questions like that one. You can't possible. sell a seller. <laughs> That's it's tough. Yeah. yeah. But um, so kind of just to, uh, to wrap things up here. One of the final questions that we really want to ask though is, like the theme of our podcast is live uncomfortably and we like to know what that means to each person and in a sense maybe it's the experiences that you had across your life that's gotten to where you are that's living uncomfortably or the why behind what you do what you do so when you hear that phrase kind of what does it mean to you and how does it relate to your life so so a couple things i'm conquering columbus the one that you also asked about um advice and i think conquering is how i've looked at I always want to master things that I'm doing. And that's what like my, my business value is the fact that I've mastered kind of some processes and how to, how to deliver services in our business so that clients choose us over a lot of other people. Um, and I would, I would advise anybody that's graduating to say, you know, find something you like enough that you're willing to master it. Because once you do that, in most cases, that's a very valuable skill that somebody's willing to pay, pay you for. Um, so that would be, uh, so my, when I look at conquering, that's kind of, like when I was brought in to regrow our Columbus market, I said, how do I conquer that? How do I go from being the smallest, and we were literally the smallest provider in the city at the time, to being the top provider? And, you know, what, what are the steps it take to get there? And we've, you know, we're not 100% there, but we're almost there. So it's been kind of neat to, to actually realize that. Uh, from a personal standpoint, um, I think some things that have helped me is I was – a very talkative child in school. I didn't listen to authority very well. I was probably in trouble at least until eighth grade more than anybody else in school. Other than For anybody that didn't get expelled or actually kicked out, I was probably in the principal's office more than anyone. Um, and, and I was like, well, what was the positive from that? And I kind of realized the positive from that was I am less afraid of getting in trouble by doing something. So where I'll have a peer that are like, oh, you can't do that. This will be that. And I'm like, you're not going to get in trouble for that. And not that you're doing anything illegal. It's like maybe a more creative approach to a client problem. Or maybe it's, hey, I'm going to try this. And if it fails, I don't care because I've gotten in trouble enough. I don't really care if I fail. So it's kind of, I think it reduced my fear threshold of like failure or what if something doesn't work out. Um, so I don't know that I'd recommend that people intentionally get in trouble in their lives. But I think there's value to realizing uh, to pushing yourself so that you're less afraid of things. Um, I'll give you a quick example. My, I 
don't know if I told you guys this. My, my son was throwing snowballs at cars in front of my house years ago. <laughs> and I first, and so I get a text from a friend saying, hey, your son's throwing snowballs at cars, and he hit my car. And so I first chided my son for doing it in front of the house, because you know you're going to get caught if you're doing it. You know, at least go down the street. You might like not get caught. Um, but we made him go apologize to the person that did it, and he was afraid to death to do it. But then we got done with it. I said, well, how was that? He goes, you know, it wasn't as scary as I thought it was. And I'm like, exactly. And so once you force yourself to do that thing that sounds really scary, it's, it's a lot less scary. And so I did tell my kids the other day, I'm like, well, so really what you should do is probably the first day of school, run around the halls naked, and then there's no way you're going to do anything more embarrassing for the next four years. They did not think that was good advice. The title, is, the title of this episode is not parenting advice. For <laughs> bad parenting advice. This is bad parenting advice, exactly. Um, no, but I think, you know, that's a topic that me and Mike talked about actually just yesterday, and it was, I kind of described it in my sense and tell me if I'm kind of hitting the same same vibe here, but I think I am. I, I talked about almost being at ground zero in any aspect of life. Like, I feel like I'm not really scared to take risks financially, just because of experience I've had in life, I'm not really scared of, of that situation of like, oh, if you lose it, you know? And I think a lot of people find themselves at ground zero in different aspects, and they say, well, I felt what that feels like. I'm not scared. I've, I've climbed the ranks. I've felt what it likes to come back. I'm not scared to lose that. So, and that, that non-fear just kind of lets you make so many more decisions in life. So is that kind of like the vibe on what you're saying there? Is that what you're going for? It absolutely is. And I, and I go, you know, like when I deal with clients, I go into meetings and I can just tell some of my competitors are afraid. And it's because, you know, what, what's, what's going to happen? What are we going to do here? And you need to go in those meetings just saying, hey, you know, I deserve to be here. And there, there's no, there isn't a reason for fear. Um, it's hard to get there sometimes. But mastery is a big piece of that. If you know your business better than anybody else or if you know, you know, whatever thing is that you're working on as well or as, as much as anyone else, then you go in comfortable like that. You don't have that fear that, oh, they're going to know something that I don't. Um, it takes years and not hundreds of years, but, you know, in some things it may take three or five years to really get good at something, but there's real value in, in finding that thing that you care enough about that you get that good at it. Absolutely. Well, Randy, uh, we really appreciate it. I think that's a great place to uh, end the episode right there. Uh, unless you have any other last words of advice or words of wisdom. No, I've already people. offered my bad parenting advice, right. so yeah, we'll stop there. All right, Conquerors, that's the end of episode 39. If you like that episode, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, social media. We're all over the place, guys. Share it with your friends. also want to ask you if you could do us a big favor, check out that podcast app you're listening to us on, and go ahead and click that subscribe button. Again, it really helps us out, and it makes sure you guys never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. Last thing we want to do before we let you go here is give one last shout-out to all of our incredible sponsors. And that starts with AWH. AWH are builders of exceptional digital products for the web and mobile that drive business for select growth companies. With over 4,500 applications developed and 10 million users enjoying AWH applications, they are focused on solving problems and improving lives through better software applications. If you want to find out more about AWH, check out awh.net, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. Conquering Columbus is also brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. For those of you who don't know who they are, the Sundown Group is an Ohio nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout Ohio. More information on the web at sundownfirst.org. Our final shout-out today goes out to Procure Clean. 
ProCure Clean is the official disinfectant and deodorizer for USA Wrestling. And they have a patented drop-and-go product that allows you to disinfect pretty much any surface in as little as 30 seconds. If you want to find out more about ProCure Clean, email sales at ProCureClean.com, which will be linked in the show notes, and tell them Conquering Columbus sent you. All right, folks, that's all we got. We'll talk to you next week. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo. A desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.